Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking again with Dr. Karen O'Brien Kopp, who is a lecturer at the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at the University of Roehampton. I will be speaking about a fascinating new 2021 Bloomsbury publication, Rethinking Classical Yoga and Buddhism, Meditation, Metaphors and Materiality. Karen, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me. We have to say that, I mean, in a timeless time of podcasts, who knows who listens to what when, but you were on the podcast just about a month ago or so talking about Spalding, and now Spalding has come and gone. Um, uh, It was a great experience, actually. I quite enjoyed presenting there. And uh, we enjoyed your paper and are very excited. Well, I'm very excited about your proposed forthcoming translation of the Devi Mahatmya. Oh, Yes. Yes. The one time I use Facebook, you hold it against me. All right. <laughs> yeah, I will. Um, I will um, definitely be. I'm actually currently preparing a translation of Davy Matsmia. Um, should be lots of fun. And maybe we'll even cover it on the podcast. Um, so uh, I find this book utterly fascinating because of the different strands that it straddles. Um, tell us a bit about the backstory. How did the book Um, How did this book idea uh, arise for you? So it arose during my graduate studies at SOAS, University of London, where the graduate program in religions there combined Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, and actually Taoism at the time. And when I was reading the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, I became interested in um, what I perceived to be books intertextual dialogue with Buddhist and and Jain thought. And when I surveyed the scholarship, I found that this wasn't a new observation. Scholars had been saying this for um, many decades, if not a hundred years or more. Uh, But that scholarship was often either very precisely focused, perhaps on particular sutras, or perhaps very broadly framed as a general theory, but one that hadn't necessarily been underpinned um, in a very systematic way. So I set out initially to read uh, the Yoga Sutra alongside some Buddhist and and Jaina material to see what I found interesting. Um, Eventually, I had to abandon the idea of looking at Jain texts after my MPhil because it just became too ambitious. But I did continue to narrow down on Uh, one Buddhist Abhidharma text, uh, which was uh, the Abhidharma Kosha, the treasury of Abhidharma by Vasubandhu, and one Buddhist text from the Yogacara tradition, which was the Yogacara Bhumi Shastra, so the treatise on Yogacara by Asanga. So by reading those three texts alongside each other, I just became interested in shared ideas around liberation shared philosophical ideas, um, particularly ontology, the theory of, of being, the theory of what there is, and how these different traditions seem to be 
conversing in part through shared metaphors. So that was the the inception, which turned into a PhD project <laughs> eventually. So then was that, so in terms of the central thrust of the book, what would you say the book is arguing or what would you say key takeaways or themes of the book are? So the key question really is what is classical yoga? And that question is asked on a number of different levels. Um, So the most straightforward level is an examination of the Yoga Sutra and trying to understand it from yet another angle. It's it's a very well-examined text. But asking um, what really is contained in this text and how does an understanding of Buddhist tradition enrich our understanding of what Patanjali is telling us? Because this is what we understand to be classical yoga, the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. Then if we think about the category of classical yoga, um, I had questions about how that category comes into scholarly discourse. Um, what does classical yoga refer to? It refers more commonly than not to the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. Um, and I became interested, I suppose, in interrogating the history of that category in the study of religions and the study of philosophy as well. So I wasn't so much focused on thinking about the, you know, the inception of the category within the Indian tradition, within Indian doxography, because I think that's a separate project. And that kind of work is being done by other scholars, such as Andrew Nicholson or Carl-Stefan Boudiet, who are looking at the development of doxographical categories in Hinduism. I became more interested in the development of classical yoga within Anglophone scholarly discourse. Um, And that really took me back to the early colonial period and um, questions around, well, who starts to use this category, classical yoga? What kind of context does, does it arise in? What does it point to in its earliest usage? Um, Is it still relevant today? Um, And that then pushed the the, the book in its closing chapters towards um, a further probing of whether classical yoga as a historical Anglophone label is in fact um, appropriate for the South Asian tradition historically. Does it really um, address and explain and, and account for the, the, the texture of, of what a text like the, the Yoga Sutra stands for in South Asian intellectual history or indeed cultural history. So um, it was, you know, a question that led to more questions, but really focused on the central um, probing of, of what is classical yoga and could it be um, expanded um, from just one text, the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, to potentially include other texts such as the ones I was reading. Uh, monographs such as yours are precisely why this podcast is now called uh, New Books in Indian Religions versus uh, New Books in Hindu Studies, because there are, there are so many strands of Indic religiosity where um, it's uh, problematic or, or anachronistic, or it's difficult to say, well, okay, that, well, that's Buddhist and that's Hindu. And so um, if someone said to you, um, um, you know, uh, would you say there's such a thing as Buddhist yoga? And, and what is that? What does that look like? Right. The big question. Um, I think I, that the book makes some contributions towards answering that question, but certainly not conclusively. 
There was a tradition called Yogachara, and for some time it was contested as to whether that term could even be associated with the yoga of the, the, the Patanjala tradition, or whether yoga in the Buddhist text meant something much more general, such as purpose or application, spiritual effort, whether it at best indicated a specific Buddhist tradition, one or more of, of meditation. But um, as I read the Yoga Charabhumi Shastra, I became interested in um, the idea of a discourse around yoga that was, in general, um, pointing at uh, related or, or closely related traditions of ascetic meditation. Um, and then the question arose as to why in the historical transmission of um, the yoga darshana, why only one text is associated with early yoga and not another text such as the voluminous treatise, the Yoga Charabhumi Shastra, which of course is a, is a vast text that addresses many different subjects, but in part it is about uh, spiritual practice, specifically meditative traditions um, that are in part aesthetically determined and are focused on liberation. So was there a Buddhist yoga? Um, there was Buddhist Yogacara and there was Patanjali yoga. And from a slightly later period with the Jain Tattvata Sutra, we get fast changing ideas of yoga in the Jain tradition. So I think there were multiple discourses around yoga, all coexisting, um, very much in conversation, formally and informally during the fourth and fifth centuries, and most likely in the earlier, earlier centuries as well. Why is your subtitle Meditation, Metaphors, and Materiality? So one of the key um, methodological approaches was um, to look at the instance of metaphor. When I began to read the Yoga Sutra next to Vasubandhu's Abhidharma Kosha, I found that the passages that appeared to me to be intertextual, which means that the wording of passages from each text seems to be very closely related, perhaps indicating borrowing on the part of one uh, author or editor. But all, most of the instances of intertextuality I found seem to be focused on use of metaphor, specific metaphors. Uh, and in particular, there are um, passages in Patanjali's text that explain um, the way the mind works through the metaphor of the seed, and of course, this is a general idea that we find in karma theory, stretching all the way back into the early Upanishads. Um, but the specific technical presentation of the seed uh, and the way it's reasoned philosophically appear to be very similar to a particular discursive and philosophical standpoint in Vasubandhu's text. Um, not just any seed, but a particular conception of the rice seed, um, particular images of agrarian conditions, planting certain seeds in certain ways. And all of this is accounting for how the mind works and how we can uproot the negative emotional states in order to progress spiritually. Uh, but in the instances that I found also with the Yoga Charabhumi Shastra, metaphors seem to have a particular role and function. 
So I was interested in why metaphors? Why might these be um, a, a, a locus or a, a point for conversation or interaction between these different traditions? And what? how does metaphor really work in the explanations of these religious practices or indeed these philosophical worldviews. So that's why it's um, linking meditation with metaphors um, because I was curious about how uh, Patanjali or Vasubandhu or many of the other um, philosophers and thinkers of this time construct their system of meditation and liberation through metaphors because we're trying to grasp an experience which is conceptually ungraspable, um, ineffable, it's beyond sensory um, experience. Uh, and so in some senses, we can only really understand uh, the highest goals of these religious practices through metaphors. What is it to be liberated? What are we being liberated from? It's not the literal getting the ball and chain off your ankle, um, ascending the ladders of, of um, liberation in Jainism. We're not actually ascending any ladders. These are metaphors. Um, we're not planting seeds <laughs> in our minds. These are all metaphors. So um, the third item in that subtitle, materiality, then began to ask um, if we could discover something more about the world of these philosophers, of these um, religious uh, thinkers through the metaphors that they were using, could, could going into the material detail of what kind of seed, um, what kind of season, what kind of soil, could that help us to understand something about the technique itself? Or indeed, perhaps something about the, the material historical world, um, the regions that these thinkers were writing in. Fascinating. Um, well, which question should I ask next? Which subfields uh, do you think this book most impacts? Uh, in, most impacts. Uh, and another way to maybe think of that is, um, who, what sorts of lay people or scholars might be interested in this book? Well, um, I think um, from religious studies, uh, it branches out into um, both Hinduism and Buddhism. So practitioners or followers of these traditions or those who are interested, I think would find much um, relevant material here. It also um, will speak to some yoga practitioners who are interested in finding out more about the history of the tradition or thinking about the way for example, classical yoga is used in contemporary um, yoga communities. Uh, there is a, a literary quality to this text because in looking at metaphors um, I, and in thinking about how these ancient thinkers interconnected, I do adopt some strategies and some methodological tools from literary studies. So when I'm talking about intertextuality, that's quite literary. When I'm talking about metaphors, I'm using a framework called conceptual metaphor theory. But there are also strands of philosophy in there and history. So I think for anyone who's interested more broadly in these religions or in the humanities, um, the text will have some uh, material that's interesting or, or, or appealing, perhaps. 
So this term classical yoga, uh, you have a, a, a clever, uh, I believe it's a chapter title that says, who put the classical in classical yoga? Tell us a bit about that and tell us, so then, so what? What do we do with that? Uh, is your book an intervention on how to understand that, how to define that? Um, uh, tell us a bit about this term. So to, uh, to understand how the term classical yoga began to be used in um, English language scholarship and Anglophone scholarship, I started to look at um, the early accounts of European Indologists reading. I was reading primarily in English, um, but I can also translate from some other European languages. And I expected to find the term classical yoga used liberally throughout 19th century scholarship, particularly um, the, the scholarship that we call Indology, so that study of, of ancient India or ancient uh, South Asia. But I didn't find this term classical yoga um, liberally pe pepper throughout that discourse at all. And I found that classical was being used in relation to literature. So there's lots about classical literature. Um, it's being used in relation to the language of Sanskrit. So being used in the sense of classical languages. Um, it starts to be used in relation to philosophy. So there's a whole um, wave of, of discussion about whether um, Indian philosophy comes from the Greeks or Greek philosophy comes from the Indian tradition. And it wasn't until the early 20th century that I began to find uh, the first references to classical yoga that I was able to locate, which start to arise in the writings of figures like Radhakrishnan in the 1920s, who's writing about the history of Indian philosophy, or in the writings of the European uh, Indologist Keith. And so this was quite surprising to me in terms of my survey of how this term was used. So one of the arguments is, in a sense, classical yoga as an Anglophone term is a bit more recent than we might initially expect. And then as I investigated this use of the term classical in relation to South Asia, uh, questions arose over what does classical really mean and what does it mean when we apply it to yoga? Um, if it's carrying all of the baggage of the neoclassical resurgence in Europe in the um, 18th century, what then are the presuppositions that are scholars or, or you know, the public are taking to this phenomenon of, of classical yoga? Um, all of these attributes from the, the ancient Greco-Roman world, um, are, they, uh, are they appropriate? Are they culturally suited to this, the historical South Asian context? Or is it, you know, somewhat of a steamrolling of, of the, the, the locality, the specificity of South Asian intellectual history? Um, and so really the final chapter of the book then asks the question, well, if, if we are to question or problematize classical yoga, then what else might be suitable? Um, what tools and labels can we pick up from the South Asian intellectual tradition that might be more specific for the context of historical yoga? And this is really an open-ended <laughs> chapter. It's, it's intended to be a starting point for further conversation. What could work better? Should we be talking about the yoga darshana? Should we be talking about Shastra yoga? Because Shastra, in a sense, potentially opens up our discussion to Buddhist texts, to Jain texts. Um, 
but all of this, I think, is is important because classical yoga is still used very much, actually, in contemporary marketing and teacher training contexts in contemporary scholarship. Um, so I think that that's where I ended up from that initial <laughs> investigation of, of the early historical um, usage of classical yoga. Well, I can imagine... Um... Well, as you mentioned, uh, scholars in various subfields being interested, but I can imagine a variety of practitioners, uh, both uh, uh, yoga practitioners, uh, 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 Buddhist practitioners, uh, those um, ensconced in meditative or contemplative practices, um, uh, being fascinated by the overlap and interconnection. And I keep returning to this idea again and again and again that that the Indic soil is a syncretic soil. It's, mm-hmm. it's you know, we have this, this, this nebulous cloud of this, this uh, renouncer revolution over a number of centuries. It gets congealed into what we now know as Buddhism, Jainism, um, uh, but classical Hinduism. Here's, there's that word again, right? Upanishadic mm-hmm. Hinduism. And yet, um, um, I think we really need to almost um, bracket out those categories when we're thinking about this, this time period. It's difficult because classical is a convenient shorthand. Um, It indicates something about a time period. It indicates something about, um, you know, the the place of a particular cultural output within a broader cultural setting. It indicates this so-called, you know, golden age or or high culture component in history. But... um, it does also come with a host of culturally specific presuppositions. Um, I myself do slightly struggle with with what to substitute classical with, and I quite often go for early, which is a little bit vague, <laughs> in fact, very vague. Um, so I would be happy to hear more from <laughs> um, anyone really about from anyone out there. Um, <laughs> have you? Um, did you entertain? Do you entertain um, uh, any emic uh, categories for the, uh, describing the texts or the period? Well, I think the most um, obvious emic category would be perhaps yoga darshana um, which points us towards you know the the philosophical tradition the philosophical basis um, of Patanjali yoga there is a potential um, nuance here that we need to be aware of which is that then that takes us into the astika and nastika um, traditions and again that starts to be more exclusive than inclusive so I think although it's not um, inherently emic as in used uh, throughout the text that I was reading I think um, you know Shastra yoga or perhaps a kind of Anglophone rendition of that Shastric yoga is is quite broad it's quite um, inclusive as in non-denominational if we use that term um, it does refer, I think, to the soil from which the, the, the developed system of yoga and other systems emerge all at the same time, more or less, um, in terms of, of the text that I'm looking at, Abhidharma and Yogachara. Uh, and I think it is emic, um, not necessarily from an experiential point of view, but from a, a kind of culturally emic position. Uh, in that Shastra is the basis of this flourishing of, of knowledge, you know, from the the early centuries of the first millennium onwards. 
Yeah, that certainly makes good sense to me. And, and I'm glad you touched on that important distinction because we think, you know, if folks are thinking in terms of darshanas, um, clearly the, the, the school of yoga is considered, um, at least by Brahmanism, one of the Ostaka schools and, 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 and Buddhism not so much. <laughs> um, uh, but the distinction you're making here is, is yoga in terms of practice, yoga in terms of, of, of contemplation versus uh, philosophical school. Would you, does that yes. sound correct? Yes. And as I said earlier, I think, uh, you know, I don't see my project or my, my questions as being directed at um, problematizing the yoga darshana within the Hindu fold in any way. That's not this project. And um, undoubtedly, the Yoga Sutra is the root text of the Yoga Darshana, and that's how it is um, treated and presented in the reception history within South Asia. So I think that's a separate question. Um, I mean, I think the issue of practice is a really interesting one. In, in a sense, it's always difficult to get at the ancient practice, particularly through texts, and to get at the emic accounts, particularly through treatises, through normative, you know, literary polished, stylized texts. Uh, what I was hoping was that some of the metaphors might provide somewhat of a gateway into the more visceral embodied experiences of practice and meditation to try to understand, um, for example, uh, what's really being indicated in the concept of Kundalini. Now, I haven't actually looked at Kundalini <laughs> in this book, but Kundalini is a very powerful um, and striking metaphor of the, the, the serpent goddess associated with heat. So what, what kind of visceral bodily experiences can we, um, can we really think into and think into in a historical context by, um, you know, picking up the metaphors that seem to be so um, invisible and embedded and sort of naturalized within these thought systems. But actually, if we pick them up and examine them, um, I think we can learn something about the lives of these ancient practitioners who we are studying. Actually, please continue. Yeah, well, I mean, on the question of, you know, embodied experience, I think this led me into uh, thinking more about material culture. And in some senses, the Yogacara Bhumi Shastra, which is a kind of sprawling, in some senses, unfocused treatise, um, it's, it's certainly not, a, a, you know, a condensed system like the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. Um, what, what you find in that kind of text is a lot of almost incidental material detail. And that can be really interesting to think about our practitioners, not as these um, idealized, perfect historical figures, but individuals who had to go into the forest alone at night and who were scared and who were cold and who found the conditions uncomfortable and who encountered spiders and snakes and didn't like this particular material on their skin, et cetera, and who, um, you know, suffer the pangs of hunger. Yeah, I'm really interested in that material detail, which allows us to really think into the, the shoes of these historical subjects that we study. And they're there in the text, they're everywhere, and yet they're also very hard to grasp. Yeah, you know, I find, I, I find that utterly fascinating you know, the impulse to it's uh, it's uh, these traditions and these texts they uh, lend themselves to ideals right, right. Um, but to think uh, not 
of, of these lofty goals or these sagacious figures, but to think of the actual, um, you know, hard work in the trenches to get there. I mean, that's one fascinating piece. And perhaps it's a love of literature in me. I started university as an as a, um, English literature major, actually. Um, and now I use some of that in, in, in what little I can use of that I use in the, <laughs> the study of Puranas. But um, metaphor, we, we have become immune to the often we're immune to the power of the metaphor because we just, oh, you know, seeds, you know, oh, oh toast the seeds, you know, roast your seeds, potentially says, well, but when you really engage in the comparison mm. of the physical act and what that might mean for someone's consciousness or life or practice, then um, the metaphors uh, survive because they're such potent tools and parallels. So I, I, f- I really find that intriguing, actually. The use of metaphor, the, the idea, the, the, the presence of shared metaphors certainly means something. Um, and, and drilling down on them, refamiliarizing ourselves with the metaphors. I, I, I really do find that particularly fascinating. They are potent, and I think they're enduring because there is potentially a kind of universal quality um, I was interested in conceptual metaphor theory that comes, it descends from Lacoff and Johnson in the early 80s who were thinking about this. And they say that there are no concepts without sensory motor experience. So in a sense, um, it could be said to be quite reductive, but that the way that we conceptualize the world um, or potential experience is always in some sense coming from what we know from the sensory motor experience of the body that we can't necessarily conceptualize um, qualities or or sensations or experiences that aren't linked to our visceral embodiment. Um, And that's why they are, I think, potent in in terms of the dialogue between schools, because they are part of shared experience. Um, But also, I think they're they're potent because they are condensed. So a metaphor has so much information condensed inside it. And I think it is relevant, in fact, to understanding how to meditate according to the system of Patanjali, or how to progress spiritually, according to the system of Patanjali, because those metaphors, when they were woven into the text by Patanjali, whether we understand Patanjali to be a single figure or a, a kind of collection of editors over a period of time, they were um, culturally familiar to the first audiences of the, the Yoga Sutra. Um, So, for example, if Patanjali is saying um, that this particular rice seed um, represents this affliction, and we know that this is a short grain rice seed um, that perhaps only matures over a very long period of time, um, then there's something specific that is to be taught and is to be learnt about this affliction. We're being told that this is a, a kind of slow developing Um, seed of karma it might um, in the material reality of that plant it might have very um, you know deep-seated roots it might be quite hard to to spot and to dislodge from the soil in your otherwise perfectly tended field so I think there's a lot of um, materially and culturally specific knowledge in those metaphors which um, is lost over time it's lost over history, it's lost over cultural transmission. And I did actually <laughs> spend, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole with um, rice seed and agrarian rice cultivation practices. I got really into it and spent a few months in the SOAS library, um, just finding out as much about rice seed cultivation as I could 
and drawing maps and examining botanical drawings to try to understand what on earth was being meant by these particular metaphors. What was there more information in those descriptions for us? And my general conclusion was, yes, there was. You, you need to know whether this is a short grain or a long grain rice, whether it's um, wild rice or cultivated rice, because wild rice in systems of cultivation, spiritual cultivation, um, wild rice is the enemy. <laughs> it self-seeds, it gets in between all your carefully planted rows, it disrupts your process of tending to your rice plants, Um and, you know, this, this question of rice seeds that self-germinate um, is very dangerous for the spiritual practitioner because it means you have to be very vigilant and you have to exercise a great degree of <laughs> self-discipline. So, yes, I think the metaphors are potent in all kinds of ways. It sounds like this rabbit hole you went on led you to a precipice. Uh, you were on the uh, cusp of changing disciplines, perhaps, changing entire fields of study. <laughs> I'm glad you stayed. <laughs> I'm glad to. <laughs> um, no, definitely. Uh, metaphors, symbols, stories. I mean, they, they hold so much. They're incredibly dense and rich with information that you know, they need to be impacted a bit. So it, it seems just instinctive to me that knowledge of the particular uh, reference will only, um, will only enhance one's, um, one's understanding of what it's referring to in the spiritual sense or the contemplative sense. Um, uh, unrelated, but not your discussion of metaphors and in the rabbit hole you go down really reminds me of an article by Julia Leslie on the crouches of the Valmiki Ramayana, where, uh, you know, Crouncha, like, you know, Hen, Curlew, however you want to translate that, these, you know, this, this seminal verse in, 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 the, in, in the opening of the Valmiki Ramayana, where, you know, Valmiki birds verse uh, by witnessing the slaughter of these these conches and she painstakingly and to my mind convincingly shows that these conches are uh, saras cranes in particular of all the species of birds in india that's a particular species and uh, they're majestic they're almost uh, they're four feet tall they're engaged in um, elaborate courtship rituals they, they 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 mourn for fallen mates and all of that is lost if you're just thinking of a curlew like what does that mean and so so without question i think you're onto something um was there anything else about the book uh, that you wanted to touch on today i suppose um it's worth saying that it's it feels like an open-ended project. Uh, obviously, I had to draw a line under it for this particular book publication. Uh, but I think that's the nature of intertextuality, that um, investigating one text leads to another. Um, this uh, surface of, of interconnected discourses, as, as Julia Kristeva called it. So... Um, I see the book as, as being part of a continuing investigation into, in particular, Buddhist and, and Hindu um, intertextuality from that period, the, the third perhaps to the fifth century. Uh, but there's certainly much more to be said and, and much more to be added. Well, I have a, 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 a saying in the back of my brain that I've uttered a couple of times on the podcast, and that's that the best books are beginnings to my mind. Those are the best books. They sort of change directions. They start conversations. They, you know, they interject something. So uh, let me end with this question then. Um, what will you be working on next? Are you continuing this work or, or you, will you be researching rice patties in India or what, <laughs> what's the next project? 
Um, well, I have two next projects. One is thinking about um, consciousness, death and immortality in the Sankhya tradition. Um, so I have ongoing research in that area that will hopefully produce another book in the future. Um, and I think I'm allowed to say um, that I will be um, producing a book for Bloomsbury's um, Introductions to World Philosophies series on uh, the philosophy of the Yoga Sutra. So very much diving into its um, status and um, discourse as a philosophical text. So that will be um, coming out at some point in the not so distant future. Well, then you'll be back on the podcast and then also distant future in the equally not so. distant future. <laughs> I hope so. I enjoy these conversations. <laughs> it's an open invitation. I imagine that um, I'll be continuing for some time yet. So why not? Um, uh, it really is a labor of love. I, I did, uh, the amount that I learned just from the podcast is just I couldn't possibly retain everything I, I learned from from all of these subfields, but it's, you know, I like I like the, the the big picture kind of piecing things together, right? So it's 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 a fun enterprise. You're you're most welcome to return, um, get in touch, or I'll certainly reach out when I see um, an announcement about your next publication. Um, and thank you for appearing today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, my pleasure. For those listening, we have been speaking with Dr. Karen O'Brien Kopp of the University of Roehampton on her brand new uh, 2021 Bloomsbury publication, Rethinking Classical Yoga and Buddhism, Meditation, Metaphors, and Materiality. Uh, until next time, keep contemplating um, uh, this thing called yoga um, and its connections to Indian religions. Take care.